welcome to Not Alone in the Land podcast, a discussion on mental health with advocates and experts on topics to end the stigma and increase awareness in the community. Here are your hosts, Portia Booker and Megan Rochford. everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Not Alone in the Land podcast. I'm your host, Portia Booker, and I'm joined by my co-host, Miss Megan Rochford. Megan, so I'll be honest, I find myself picking the brain of my three mentors more than usual lately, right? So one question I want to ask you is, what would you say is the toughest love or brutally honest advice you receive from a mentor or coach, which helped you to be a better clinician and better person? You know, it's, that is such an interesting uh, question, Portia, because, uh, you know, in all honesty, the, the best sort of feedback I ever got was not necessarily from a mentor or a coach who was clinical. It was from my spouse. And it really changed the way that I think about my thinking and, and how I help other people think about their thinking. And it was, something along the lines of, um, you know, feedback around my tendency to worry about certain things, especially family and life in general, and my tendency sometimes to maybe overdo that. And so what he said to me on, on a certain occasion when I was uh, worrying about something, let's say it was the, the weather, for example, you know, oh, it's, it's uh, uh, polar cold in here and the, the pipes are going to freeze again or, or some, something like that. Um, you know, the, it, there, there's a, the, the weather forecast is dreadful. It's going to be uh, super, super below zero. And uh, he looked at me and he said, not in here, it isn't. <laughs> not in here, it isn't. And he's done that several times on, on other topics. So I'll say, blah, blah, blah. I'm worried about, uh, you know, coronavirus, for example. We were, we were just talking about that um, a moment ago before we started our recording today. The, the case rates and, um, uh, you know, the vaccine rates and uh, people getting sick. And he said, uh, there's no one has it in here, Megan. No one has it in here. And so whenever I get into a space like that, where I start to sort of take something to an extreme, I think about how my spouse frames the world. Like, it's not happening here. It's not happening in this moment. And, and it's really uh, been a big eye opener for me as far as like, how I think about things and, and how I help other people think about things. You know, Megan, I love that. It's almost like your spouse is kind of like that grounding factor, right? That's yeah. a really, really deep thing that he does for you, right? Because yeah. I think sometimes when we think what the chicken little effect, the sky is falling, mm. we, you know, we, we have a hard time coming back to the basics of, okay, well, we're inside. It's not the snowmageddon in here. So <laughs> I definitely agree. You know, Megan, I would say for me, one of my mentors said the best quote ever that I've ever heard. If I do what I always did, I'll get what I always got. And for the longest time, she said this to me years ago and I didn't understand it. And I'm like, what do you mean? But what she was getting at is she reinforced that change begins with us and our openness to it. Mm -hmm. She said, Portia, if you really aspire to be, you know, a big media personality, she said, you have to change the way you perceive things. You have to change the way that you think. And so when she broke it down in that way, I said, oh, the light bulb moment went off. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
you know, I'm, I'm grateful to my mentors because they always pour into me. They're, they're great people. And they, like I said, always help us to really get to where we need to go. So Megan, I know today we have an internationally known game changer with us today. So Megan, who are we joined by today? Today, we're joined by Dr. Lucine Wisniewski. She's the founder and chief clinical officer of the Center for Evidence-Based Treatment of Ohio and an internationally recognized leader in dialectical behavior therapy and eating disorder treatment with more than 25 years of clinical and training experience. She's taught hundreds of workshops and continuing education seminars around the globe, authored numerous articles in peer-reviewed journals and invited book chapters, and provided consultation and training to eating disorder clinics everywhere. In addition, she's earned some of the highest honors and accreditations in the industry. In 2013, Dr. Wisniewski was awarded the Outstanding Clinician Award from the Academy for Eating Disorders, a testament to her leadership in the field and her commitment to providing the best possible care. Welcome, Lucine. Oh, thank you, Megan. Thanks so much. Thank you, Portia. It's really great to be here. Lucine, I knew we had somebody good today when I had to put in the word internationally known, right? <laughs> I knew we had something good in store for our listeners today. So Lucine, I always love to start these conversations with learning how people land in the field of mental health. So what sparked your interest in a career in mental health? Did you kind of like Megan intern someplace and then say, hey, I like this? Or did in your case, kind of like me, it fell into your lap? Share with our listeners how you started a career in mental health. Oh, you know, first of all, it was a long time ago. Um, and I often think about this as I've got three kids who are college and just post-college age. And I think about how different it was for me. Um, I changed my major four times. You know, I went to school thinking that I was going to study French and I wanted to be a uh, like a translator or work for the UN and then quickly got disabused of that. And then I accidentally sat in a class that was a, uh, I mean, I, there was three other changes of my major in between there. And then I accidentally sat in a biopsychology class and I sat in the front seat because I'm a nerd. And then once the class started, I realized I was in the wrong class, but I was too embarrassed to get up and leave. So I sat through this biopsychology class and thought, wow, this is really cool. And that was part of how I started on the process. I also went to graduate school thinking I was never going to see a patient. I only wanted to do research. You know, I think that people often um, don't understand the opportunities that can happen if you just take the opportunities that come up for you um, and see where they lead. I was never a person who said, oh, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to make that happen. I've sort of made it up as I go along. Now, that being said, a couple of years ago, my mother sent me some things. She was cleaning out our basement and there was like my eighth grade yearbook. And in my eighth grade yearbook, apparently I said I wanted to be a psychologist. Somehow I've lost that between eighth grade and about the age of 20. Um, but, you know, so I, I don't know what to tell you, Portia. I think that my, my message often to people is, you know, I'm so grateful that I didn't I'm so grateful that I had a little anxiety and didn't want to get up in front of those people and leave that class because it was a gigantic class. Um, but I'm really grateful for having had opportunities that I didn't shy away from and that I, um, you know, sort of stuck with and saw where it was going to lead me. 
Um, and for anybody in their early in their career, or even frankly, anybody who is, you know, sort of feeling a little bit lost, my, my, uh, my recommendation is you got to get out there and do things. And when you do things, it will become more clear. Lucy, that is so cool. I don't think I ever knew that about you, that, that it was sort of an, an accidental game changer. That is amazing. You know, I, I love thinking about the work that, um, that we do in mental health as like uh, uh, ripples on a pond, right? That it, it uh, ripples out to the edges of the pond, that it ripples down uh, through people's lives and even through generations. And imagine all the lives that were changed just because you put your butt in that seat at that moment. That's such a cool thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah, true that, true that. So, so we know that you're an expert in dialectical behavior therapy or DBT for short. Yeah. If DBT was an ice cream flavor, which one would it be and why? Yeah, you know, I think DBT would be moose tracks because what Marsha Linehan did at, when she developed DBT is she pulled from all of the existing evidence-based treatments. She pulled the best parts of it and put it into DBT. And I, I love chocolate and I love peanut butter and I love caramel. And so Moose Tracks is taking the best things from all these different flavors and putting them into one uh, ice cream. And I feel like that's what Marsha did with DBT. She really um, searched out the best qualities of many of the evidence-based treatments at that time and put them into her treatment. So, but partly it's also self-serving because it's my favorite flavor. <laughs> Lucene, I must say the image that I get in my head of, of moose tracks and you being a therapist is I see you trotting through the woods with somebody trying to say, hey, come on. I know you're going to get stuck in some quicksand along the way, but we can make it. We can make it to the top of Mount Everest. <laughs> that, you know what? That's a great metaphor, Portia, because it's a lot like that. It's a lot like that. So, Lucy, for our listeners, you know, we've been trying to demystify therapy for our listeners, right? Because I know sometimes when people hear these terms, it can sound like something in a storybook and it's hard to bring that concreteness to it. So can you maybe give our listeners a brief overview of DBT and maybe walk us through what somebody might experience in a typical session? Yeah, you know, Portia, it's a, I think it's a great question because so in my in my center, I am the front door because I feel very committed that people don't, number one, come to us if they don't need to come to us, that there might be other places where they can get their needs met. And number two, that we are that we offer hope right at the the beginning process, because many of people who come to DBT come to DBT because someone's told them that they need more that they need DBT. And I often talk to people who have lovely, caring, smart therapists who are not trained in an evidence-based model and that people end up feeling because they've been in therapy, because they need something more specialized, they end up feeling that they're not getting better because of themselves, not because they haven't had the right treatment because they've been working with a smart, caring person that they like and they think, oh, well, it must be me. So what DBT is, is so vastly different than I think what people experience therapy as they think, you know, often have people call and they say, I want my kid or I, I want to, you know, find the right fit. The right fit is not just about the connection with the therapist, it's also the right therapy. And so what DBT offers is a structure 
for therapy. It's not like, what am I going to go and talk about? It's pretty clear what you're going to talk about. We set up our agenda in targets. And so many of the people who need DBT treatment, need DBT treatment, or would benefit from DBT treatment because they have significant emotion dysregulation that results in behavior that's a problem. And the primary behaviors that they have are suicidal thinking or suicide or, or frank suicidal behavior or self-harm. Now, DBT, we'll talk about that later, but DBT is appropriate for other problems as well. But let's say you have suicidality or self-harm. We structure our session such that the first thing you talk about is the suicidality and self-harm because so Marsha Linehan, who is a gene, she's a genius, you know, and she, so I worked with her when I lived in Seattle um, for a few years. And she's been known to say things like, you can't get better if you're dead. She's sort of, um, you know, she's pretty irreverent. And so the idea is that the treatment says like, we need to work on your suicidality and your self-harm from the beginning, in the beginning. So we structure our session such that we're going to talk about urges that you might've had to self-harm and urges that you might've had to for suicide first and foremost. It is not uncommon for therapists in the community to sort of think, well, I'll just talk about this other stuff and the suicidality will get better. And there's not research to support that really. And so we focus that from the beginning, it's a structured session. You set an agenda with your therapist. She, will, she or he will help you set the agenda if you don't know, you know how to do that. And we go through, um, you know, what about your, well, I, there's, I'm sort of, kind of need to get into some of the um, components of DBT because one of the things that you do is you complete a diary card and a diary card tracks your urges and your behaviors. So you're not just going in with that pressure of what am I even going to talk about? It is clear. You're going to set an agenda. The first thing you're going to talk about is the suicidality. Then you're going to talk about anything that might interfere with you getting what you need out of the therapy. And then you're going to talk about other things from your week that are things that you're concerned about that you want to make sure get addressed. But you're, you're matching up your, uh, di your diary card as part of what helps you set that agenda. And I don't know if people have that kind of experience. I think it is more common for people to go to see somebody and the therapist says, hey, how was your week? And not that that's not good for some people, but if you have behaviors that are um, you know, life-threatening, you need more structure and accountability. One of the things that I thought was interesting is... Um, you know, I know Megan's husband and he's a lovely guy. Um, and this idea of not in here is actually a DBT skill that we teach people. It's called check the facts. Like, okay, you think this thing is going to happen. You know, can you check the facts on that? It's not happening in here. And so as a therapist, one of the things that we're going to do is help you in your session is help you get both get skills that you need to be able to do things differently and to be able to accept yourself a little bit more for the problems that you have right in this moment. Now that might've been more than you were looking for, Portia, but, but that's basically what a therapy session looks like. I love that, Lucene. I'm gonna have to share that with my house. He's a, he's a DB, my spouse, he's a DBT genius and he doesn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. 
So you've talked a little bit about um, what, you know, uh, what a, a typical DBT session might look like, that it's definitely more structured, that there is more planning that goes into it, that there's more accountability that goes into it. So I think from what you've said there, that's, that's pretty helpful to understand, you know, kind of not only what a basic session is like, but also what makes DBT special and unique. If you were to sort of think about who might benefit from DBT, or if there are certain perhaps mental health conditions or problems that are uh, best suited to DBT, what would you say that might be? Yeah, you know, there are, so I'm going to back up just a little bit to say that there are a couple other things that make DBT special and unique, which is part of what will certainly happen in an individual therapy session that I didn't address that also gets to who this treatment is for. So if you were to do um, comprehensive DBT, which is what the research is based on, it, 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 it entails four components. The first is the individual therapy, which is what I just described. As part of the treatment, you would be going to a skills group once a week. And this group is not like a let's sit around and talk about our feelings kind of group. It's a, it's like a class. It's a skills-based class because we assume like Megan's example, that if you could have not worried about the stormageddon, you wouldn't have. And so you need skills to be able to learn to do things differently. And so you would go to a skills group once a week where you would learn a whole series of skills that help you manage your emotions more effectively and manage your behaviors and manage your relationships and manage your brain, all of those things. So, so that is the second component of DBT. So there's the individual therapy, there's the skills, and then, and this is important in terms of who this treatment is helpful for, um, is there's, you have, if you are in comprehensive DBT, now this is again, important. I'm using that word specifically because there's a lot of people who will tell you that they they do DBT, but they do aspects of it. To get the full package, you need all four of the components that I'm describing, individual therapy, group skills, and then there's something called telephone coaching, which means you have access to your therapist outside of session. It's part of the therapy contract such that you can call your therapist before a crisis happens, before you engage in a crisis behavior to be able to be more skillful and to be able to do things differently and to generalize the skills that you're learning in group, because you probably know this, everybody knows this from having been in school in whatever form at some point, you learn something in a classroom that doesn't necessarily mean you can then do it or practice it outside once you hear it. So the skills, your, so your therapist will help you use the skills. So for example, if Megan was upset about the storm coming and even her husband saying not in here wasn't helpful, she could call her therapist and say, I've tried this already. I'm still really upset. Can you help me think about another skill to use so that I'm, you know, I can calm down and be able to go to sleep. So, so skills coaching over the phone is another component of DBT. Now this is hugely important when you talk about people who have suicidality and self-harm, right? They have crises fairly regularly <clears throat> and learning to call and ask for help before the crisis happens is actually something really important in terms of changing your life. If you only get the help and support you need after the behavior occurs, 
it, which is fine. It's good that you get that, but it doesn't help you do things differently from the, from the other end of the, of the story. And then finally, your therapists, both your individual therapist and your skills trainer are part of what we call a consultation team. And they meet every single week. It's part of the treatment in order to make sure that we are doing the treatment as it's written and that we are making sure that as therapists, we're taking care of ourselves so that we can give you the best care that you possibly can. So DBT in the way that, it, the way that it's supposed to be done or the way that the research has um, been studied is on the, a treatment that includes all four components. So therefore, when, when you ask Megan, who is this treatment for? It was originally designed for people who have chronic suicidality, um, you know, and were the people that nobody really wanted to treat. They were afraid of treating them. They didn't know how to treat them. So Marsha developed this treatment. Eventually she figures out that the people who have chronic suicidality, you know, no one really wants to die. What they want to do is not feel like this anymore. Okay. And mm -hmm. so what she figured out is that, that those people who had, who chronically wanted to die, wanted to die as an escape from their emotions because they couldn't figure out how to manage their emotions. And so, and Marsha, you know, it's funny last night I was, because again, I'm a nerd. What I do on a Friday night was watching a video of Marsha Linehan's uh, talking about her, um, her own mental health trajectory. You know, Marsha is out about the fact that she was hospitalized um, for two years at a psychiatric facility back in the 1960s. Um, and this was part of this story about how it, these individuals who wanted to be able to, who were thinking about dying, really just wanted to escape the feeling that they were having. So those individuals, she then understood, were, had, were people who more than likely had borderline personality disorder. So the treatment goes from just working with people with suicidality to expanding to work with people with borderline personality. And at the core of borderline personality disorder is emotion dysregulation and the inability to focus, to be able to manage your emotions. And so now the treatment has been expanded for use with other populations who also have significant trouble with um, emotion dysregulation. So our group has pioneered the use of DBT with complex comorbid eating disorders. There's another group who has pioneered DBT for individuals with substance use disorders. But these are often people who haven't been helped by other treatments. DBT is not generally the first thing you go to if you have, for example, substance use or eating disorders. Usually you go to those if you go to DBT if you haven't been helped by more traditional treatments because it, it often means that we're missing something and it may be the emotion regulation. So that's my long answer to um, who is DBT good for and making sure that I told you all of the ways that DBT was unique. Lucene, I must say that is very interesting to learn. For one, when I think of DBT, kind of the way that I opened up our conversation today, it makes me think of an on-hand, a hands-on coach or mentor situation, right? Because like I mentioned, my mentors, I pick their brain all the time. You know, when I'm struggling to find the right word to say in an essay or a Facebook post. So it's almost that same reinforcement with somebody who has that suicidal ideation or somebody who's struggling with an eating disorder. They're able to have access to somebody immediately. 
You know what? That is a great way to think about it because it's often the case, you know, we see, and I work a lot with families. I do not, I am not somebody who believes that families cause their kid to have problems. Now, in some situations that is true when there's frank abuse and neglect, but it is often the case that I see families that are well-meaning, who love their kid, but for whatever reason, there's a mismatch, whether it be that this kid has intense emotions and the parents also have intense emotions, so they don't know how to help them. Um, or that there's a there that parents don't have intense emotions and this kid is more like Uncle Frank and that, you know, who who they also don't know how to help. And that it's more usually the case that people don't know how to help them to teach them to manage their emotions and having a therapist who gets it, who is able to give you skills is life saving for many individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, yeah. Lucene. And, and I, sorry, Megan, I wanted to ask this question, Lucene, about DBT. Now, I know that you mentioned about in the building the skills and also keeping kind of like that diary of your emotions, right? Yeah. I, I just want to know, for our listeners who are tuning in, would you maybe recommend that even if they're not seeing a DBT therapist, maybe keep that notebook of their emotions when they go to visit with their therapist. That way their therapist may be able to better assist them as well. Uh, you know, that's a that's a great idea. There's probably even examples of these, we call them diary cards online. You know, you can find anything on Google or Pinterest. You know, I, I type in a situation like that. I type in DBT diary card on Google images. You can probably find one and use it and then bring to your therapist as a way to help you guys together track your emotions and your behaviors in a way that, you know, because again, I'm hoping that as a therapist, even you guys have had therapy. I've had therapy. And sometimes you go into therapy and you're thinking, what happened this week? Wait, what do I want to talk about? And if you don't have something concrete to be able to remind you, even if you're not doing DBT, that sort of um, tracking of your week can be a very helpful tool in um, helping your therapist know exactly how to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I the, the idea of helping the therapist help you—that's something that really stands out to me about uh, DBT, and especially when you think about Marsha Linehan. You know, I know we've talked about this, Lucine, that Marsha Linehan, in my mind, she's like the Rosetta Stone mm-hmm. um, or the secret decoder ring for borderline personality disorder that before she came along and she could explain to other people from her own lived experience what was happening and what was helpful and what was meaningful, I don't think anybody really had kind of cracked that code as far as how to help people. But she's made an enormous difference in the lives of a lot of people who before were considered to be sort of lost. You know, there's, oh, there's not a whole lot we can do here. You know, we're just kind of resigned to it. But that has all changed. And, And that's the cool thing. Um, And there's plenty of evidence to show that that is the case, that this is a very effective uh, form of treatment. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what the research shows regarding DBT's effectiveness? Sure. Um, Now, when I was watching that that, uh, video last night, I think Marcia said there were 46 randomized control trials. Um, Now, and that was several years ago now at this point. Um, but they, but what we know about DBT is that DBT is effective to help people decrease suicidality, decrease self-harm, to keep people out of the hospital. Um, and for those things, it is super 
effective. Remember, these are individuals who are often um, high utilizers, you know, people who end up in uh, ERs very often or who have not been helped by standard treatments. And so therefore their behaviors are still, can be very out of control. So it can help people go from really a very chaotic life to a more stable life. Now, DBT is not a magic bullet. Um, it's not that once you do that, everything is fine because there's still a bit of work. Often people have to sort of do a little bit of uh, emotional and social catching up after they are get better from their, you know, they're able to manage their emotions more effectively. But it is the, it is one of, I think, two really evidence-based treatments for people with borderline. You mentioned about how Marsha has cracked the code. I think the other thing that Marsha has done is destigmatized the 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 diagnosis of borderline personality. So when I was a uh, like a first year graduate student, I had my very first patient. Remember, I didn't want to see patients, right? But I had to because it was part of my training. And they and the clinic director said, "Okay, Lucine, you have your first patient." I was like, "Okay, great. She's borderline." I'm like, "What does that mean? What did I know? It was like 1989 or something." It's like that. That's she has borderline. I was like, "Well, what does that mean?" She's like, "Oh, you're gonna find out." And I thought. I was terrified to go in and meet this individual who was lovely. Now, of course, she had lots of problems, but she was lovely. Um, and I think that that stigma, even from another mental health professional, was part of what was pervasive in our field. Now, when people call and they say, I have borderline, they're relieved because they know that there is a treatment for that problem. And it's an evidence-based treatment. And you don't actually have to be, a, a, you don't have to be ashamed nor shunned um, if you have it, because if you find the right person who understands this problem, then they can help you, you know, find a way to do things differently. And so I think Marsha really has helped with, with um, destigmatizing the problem of borderline personality disorder um, and given people a lot more hope. And there are, there are lots of people, you know, um, there's a, you know, famous, of course, I don't remember names, but there's a famous football player who is out about having borderline personality disorder, whose name I won't remember. Uh, there's also the guy on Saturday Night Live from Staten Davidson. Island. No, he <laughs> Davidson, right, who's also out about having borderline personality disorder. And it's, you know, it's like, okay, listen, if you, it is generally, it, as in mental health, we don't choose these things to find us. If they have found us for whatever reason, it's not to be, you're, you're not to be ashamed about it and how lucky you are to know that there's an evidence-based treatment to help the problem that you have. Absolutely. Lucene, you know, I definitely agree with that. You know, more people feel more, I would say, comfortable, especially because social media has created a platform for people to be able to be authentically them. So, Megan, you know, how does not, I know, Lucene, sometimes people have a hard time finding the right shoe that fits, right? The right therapist or right treatment. So, Megan, for you, how does NAMI help families find resources or therapies such as DBT? So that's a, that's a great question, because inevitably that's what um, comes out of conversations like this, and that's what we're hoping for. Um, and so uh, NAMI operates a helpline. Um, Monday through Friday from nine to five with uh, uh, trained um, helpline operators who can answer questions just like that. Uh, we can be reached at 216-875-7776 
Or if people prefer, they can live chat us on our website at namigreatercleveland.org. And um, we have a number of resources that can help people uh, connect to um, uh, trained therapists in certain specialties or help people to kind of go down checklists of questions to help identify like, is this a person a good fit? Does this feel right to me? Is this working for me? Uh, so we're, we're always there, always happy to help people um, with, with questions like that. Excellent. And, you know, Megan, I have to say, this has been, no pun intended, a game-changing conversation for me. <laughs> I, you know, I always love doing these. Megan, what are your final thoughts? Uh, just that, we, as always, Naomi wants people to know that you are not alone, that, that help is out there. And like Lucene has been saying throughout this conversation, uh, if, if what you're finding uh, hasn't necessarily been working for you in therapy, or if you haven't tried therapy yet, but you're thinking about it, uh, and you're wondering, you know, if this problem is about you, it's not. As you know, Lucene has emphasized so eloquently throughout this conversation, it's about finding the right fit and the right treatment. And uh, it is definitely out there. The help is out there. Absolutely. So Lucene, once again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this information with our listeners. It really, to me, has been a game changer as I'm a, an aspiring therapist myself. I'm trying to go back to school to also be a game changer like you. So for our listeners, Lucene, you've left a lot of words with them, a lot of thought-provoking questions. What words of hope can you leave with our listeners today? Whether it's somebody who maybe their traditional therapy sessions are not working for them, maybe they want to change things up, or maybe it's a family member who is aware that DBT is out there, and maybe they want to guide their family member towards that direction. What words of hope can you leave with them today? Well, you know, I think that, um, and I'd say this about DBT, but I'd say this about therapy in general. You know, if, and, and this is sort of the way that I, how I hang my hat and the way that I run our clinic, is if you're not getting helped, if you don't feel helped, it's, it, it, it's not generally you. I mean, it is you because you're the one that's in there and you're the one that's interacting with your therapist, but it's a dynamic between you and the, and the therapist and then the treatment the therapist is giving you. And so it's, it's helpful sometimes to take a step outside of that and talk to an independent person and, and sort of get a little feedback about does the independent person have any thought about what might you want to change to, to sort of realign things and see if it helps to give you some energy. But I think that if you're not feeling helped, then I think that you need to be able to not just stay in that situation. I'm not saying just leave your therapist, but you either have to have a conversation with your therapist or a conversation with somebody else to try to understand, is it do I, am I not getting the right therapy? Is it the wrong? I give the, give the um, analogy sometimes is you go to a doctor and the doctor gives you penicillin, but you really needed amoxicillin. You might not get better. It's not your fault. And so it may be that you're getting penicillin and you need a different kind of treatment in order to get your problem better. But you have to have that conversation with your therapist or with somebody that you love or with someone independent to figure out what that is. And you can get better. I've seen people who have had lives of pain and suffering get the right therapy and make changes. So there's hope. Please, please don't give up. That's really my main my main point. Yes, that is the no pun intended 
uh, cherry on top of the moose track ice cream. <laughs> I well, never everybody. put cherries on my moose track. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, you heard from Miss Lucine Wisniewski. Well, that concludes another episode of Not Alone the Land podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. Until next time.